Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. If you'd done that, uh, you'd have gotten my two columns this past week. I covered how I believe the way to check some of these excesses in the media is through lawsuits, especially for parties like Lee Olson, who we've seen was wrongfully terminated for a little while for just a smear that the Bloomberg Law uh, website ran on him. I also covered how we should begin reevaluating how we review U.S.-China relations, given how the NBA has reacted this past week. I'll get more into that into the podcast this week. And then also, I had an update in the newsletter this week on both Syria and the impeachment and process that we're watching with Donald Trump, and just how to look at and analyze those all. This podcast is powered by Podcast One, who's supposed to be advertising on the front end as well as during the breaks. The way that they have you set these up is that you set up breaks for them to throw in some advertisements through the middle, and so you also have one at the, at the beginning. I've had some trouble with them actually doing that. I've done everything on my end, so if you hear them, great. If you don't, um, just, just know that it's on them. If you want to advertise on this podcast yourself, feel free to reach out to me. Contact information for that, as well as sign-up links for everything I've mentioned so far, can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and this week new is Stitcher, and as well as just about anywhere else you can get podcasts. Those five-star reviews help other people like you find us, so please make sure to leave those reviews. It helps us move up in the rankings and uh, just goes a long way to helping other people find us. This week, I'm going to be covering the NBA in China, and I'm going to expound a little bit on the column that I wrote this past week for the Conservative Institute as well as covering Elizabeth Warren's pregnancy firing story that she's been telling since 2014 and some new developments that we've learned this past week through some good reporting from some people at the Washington Free Beacon as well as in the Wall Street Journal. And just whether that story is true or not, it's telling us a lot about what the how the media is treating her and just how they're picking her out of the entire Democratic field. And then finally, I will wrap up with a new Supreme Court case that deals with abortion and cover why I think the court took this case, as well as what it says about abortion moving forward and how I think pro-life advocates need to think about moving forward at the state level. But before we jump into all that this week, I wanted to talk real quick about Syria and cover that as a quick hit this week. And I just wanted to cover real quick why this has been such a disaster for the United States. The first point is is that we're abandoning our allies, the Kurds. They have helped us numerous times. I know Donald Trump came out and said they didn't help us out in World War II. Well, whether they have helped us is in combating ISIS to the tunes of imprisoning thousands of ISIS um, prisoners. They've had them in jails there, and with Turkey moving in, we're seeing all of these prisoners who are basically end up being set free because the people who are guarding them are now under attack from Turkey. There is no, the second point is, this isn't an end, as Donald Trump and some others of his supporters have said, to endless wars. I get that point. I understand it. I even kind of feel it at this point since we've been in Afghanistan and Iraq for over a decade now. That's bad, and we need Congress to think about either restricting how we use these AUMFs or 
a presidency that looks at having a strategy in all this. But either way, this is not an end to the to endless wars, as it were, because we're still there in Syria. We didn't leave Syria. All we did is move our troops from one location to another to allow Turkey to roll in and start attacking our Kurdish allies in the region. So this isn't an end to anything. In fact, Donald Trump ended up sending more troops into Saudi Arabia. So we're still engaged over there with even more troops in this area. So this isn't an end to anything. And the third point that should bring up is that our troops are in harm's way. When Turkey began bombing these areas, we some of our troops were dangerously close to some of this stuff, even though we told them to stay away from us while we were there. This is Turkey using their status as a NATO ally and in the NATO alliance to push us out of that region and sort of fulfill just not only their desires, but also some Russian desires that since they're also involved with all of this. And the last point is just, we like as I said before, we are engaged in that area. All we did is move our troops. We sent more into Saudi Arabia to help them out with their Yemen problem and other things. So Syria is... A complete and total mess. There's hardly any good answers. This is a problem where Donald Trump isn't tr- attempting anything new. He's actually continuing the same problems that we've had under the Obama administration. Our betrayal of the Kurds here is basically a continuation of a more than decade-long betrayal of them on just about every front. We keep asking for their help in containing ISIS. We keep asking for their help in fighting various wars in the region. And we turn around each and every time and just either and just don't do anything to help them at all. In 2015, Republicans tried to send lethal aid directly to the Kurds to help them fight. And that ended up getting voted down by a Democratic majority and Barack Obama. So this is a continuation of a very bad policy for multiple administrations now, and it needs to change. John McCain wrote an excellent op-ed in 2017 in the New York Times where he said we needed to have a strategy in the Middle East. That's still true because the problem here is that we don't have a strategy at all. And part of that problem is that Congress hasn't come in and gone through any vote or any debate about what we're doing over there. This is a unilateral action by the presidency who's using past things and justifying it under like the Iraq and Afghanistan AUMFs. So we need to come up with a better strategy. I'm just not hopeful we'll come up with one anytime soon or in the near future. I expect the story to keep going, so that's just what I wanted to cover at the top, and that's all i got to say on that one for now. But it'll probably come up again because there's just a lot of bad things going over there. There are a lot of videos going across social media about how Turkish fighters are attacking men, women, and children and killing people in the streets, pulling women out of their cars and shooting them. And so it's just a bad situation all around. That brings us to the first section for this week, the NBA and China. Like I said, I'm going to cover a little bit of what I wrote in my Conservative Institute column and then wrap it up with a second point that I wanted to get to in that column but didn't have anywhere near enough space to flesh the ideas out. So if you don't remember, this comes down to Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey. He sends out a tweet of support for the Hong Kong protesters. That stays up for less than an hour. 
and then he takes it down and then files a sort of, it's not really an apology, but sort of talking about why he didn't mean to put that up and talking through all the different problems with how he saw that could instigate something with China. Anyway, there were, his apology, non-apology, was longer than the simple tweet of support where it showed a picture where he was supporting the Hong Kong protesters. And then with that, the NBA started stripping down every part of how the Houston Rockets were associated with the NBA, and you couldn't find anything associated with the Houston Rockets in on just about any Chinese website. Within hours, they stripped everything and fired up their sensors so that they you just couldn't find anything Houston Rockets related. And then they ended up even going even further, and NBA players were restricted from even talking. And then when they did talk, they was in full support of all this Chinese censorship and China in general. It was a gigantic mess that the NBA got itself into. And the main point that I wanted to make in my Conservative Institute column was that was comparing this situation to what Richard Nixon wanted to do when he went to China and opened it up. The point of that was soft diplomacy. China was a a closed-off, isolationist, communist empire that was working with the Soviet Union through most of the 20th century. And so the goal was to sever that relationship and open China up to the rest of the world. We we want to go into a separate type of a Cold War with them. We wanted to open up relations, and the theory was if you open them up to all this marketplace access and help them enrich themselves a little bit and build up, then over time they would become a more free and prosperous society that would be an asset to the West later on. So all of that makes sense. It's a good theory, and it's worked in other places. The problem is that what China has done over time has just become a communist police totalitarian state where they're using all of the their newfound riches to build up the Communist Party and control every aspect of everybody's lives. And what we're seeing now is that when they're engaging more abroad, it's not American values that are being exported to them. It's their form of censorship and authoritarianism that is getting exported both to us and the world. It's the reverse of what we want to see happen. And that export, when you're exporting back to us, and we're seeing things like NBA players act like they are being censored, or things like NBA executives where they're full because they want access to this entire market, they're willing to muzzle themselves and not saying anything. That's the reverse version of American values, and it's not good for Americans to be doing this to deal with a state that we know is both authoritarian, evil, it's even got problems with racism and apartheid. What they've done with various ethnic minorities and religious minorities in the group is just absolutely devastating. They have a specific Muslim minority group who they've flat out almost wiped out. They've gone into the western part of the country and just not just wiped them out and put these people in re-education camps. They've completely bulldozed any cultural site, some of these thousands of years old. They've bulldozed these entire sites. When you look compare before and after photos via satellite, You've got what once were these diverse areas of old architecture that are now just leveled flat, flatter than a parking lot, where there's no sign that this civilization ever existed. And so that's the stamp that the Chinese Communist Party is putting on the country, 
It's trying to create a form of Chinese nationalism and absolutely wipe out any other type of diversity or color in the country. So that's who we're dealing with here. And so to see the NBA just towing the party line for China just to get access to that money, while they're, it's fully within their right as a private group to do that, it's bad for America, for Americans to be involved in this type of process. You do not want American citizens going over there and legitimizing the Communist Party in this manner. It's just bad. And having said that, the weird thing about this entire situation, in America at least, is that everyone on both sides of the political aisle have switched sides from where they were previously. It's just this level of hypocrisy that's hard to get over. So on the one hand, you had on the right, the conservative side, you had the Laura Ingram, shut up and dribble crowd, who were telling people like LeBron James that they didn't want to hear what he said on politics, they just wanted him to shut up and dribble, or they would look at Colin Kaepernick and they would blast them for kneeling in the anthem and making a political statement and say, just get back to playing, we don't want politics in our sports. Well, now they've completely flipped sides and they want all these NBA players to make all these political statements and make the correct political statement in this case, which is opposing the Chinese. You don't want them kowtowing to the Chinese like this. It's a bad form. And while I get that, their critique this time would have a little more weight had they let the players freely speak their mind and not get blasted again and again for speaking out on things that they saw. And on the opposite side, the NBA has promoted itself as the wokest of all the sports leagues. None of their players are ever afraid to speak out on anything. It's not like the, the Roger DeGale-led NFL. NBA players are supposed to be able to f- be free to say whatever they want. And you have people like Steve Kerr or Greg Popovich regularly speaking out on any type of political issue. And yet, when it comes to this, they're kind of taking the advice of the shut-up-and-dribble crowd. They're just getting back to sports. They don't want to say anything about it. They're willing to say absolutely anything but any anything directly about China. It's just the rankest form of hypocrisy on both sides, and it's infuriating to see. Because my entire point on the on during like the Colin Kaepernick stuff is I I didn't really care. He can kneel, he can do whatever he want. He there were some points that could be made there. He was a bad messenger. All that was true, but the point was I believe he needed he should be able to allow to do all of that, and. The shut-up-and-dribble crowd just never made any sense. We have all this problem in the whole cancel culture thing that we have right now where people are trying to take people's jobs for speaking out on issues that they believe in politically or religiously or anything, and that needs to stop. You don't need to cancel somebody just because they hold a view that you do not like. And so a lot of the criticisms from the right would have, been, would have a lot more weight right now had they not said all of those things before about people like Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James, especially when there was an overarching point that they had during that time about police brutality. I mean, at the Supreme Court itself, there was a case uh, named Flowers, and it involved a prosecutor in Georgia who struck every last single black person off a jury on account of their race. That was the only reason these people were getting kicked off. And the verdict kept getting tossed out. 
and it went back and forth to the Supreme Court six times where this prosecutor kicked black people off of a jury purely on the basis of race, and this is all contemporaneous, just to get this one man convicted, this one black man convicted. And the Supreme Court ended up having to step in and rule that you cannot do that. This was such an egregious case that, that you cannot make the, the decisions that this prosecutor made. You also have places like Baltimore, which have police officers who were running just a full-on extortion ring themselves, who were extorting black people, who were using stop and frisk as a mean to rob people on the streets and steal from them. We just recently also had the case out of Dallas where an off-duty police officer went into somebody else's house and shot them. And now she's going to get 10 years. That was where you saw the viral video of the brother of the victim forgiving that police officer. And while that was viral, and it, it was just a beautiful sight if you're a Christian and a believer, there's still that point there where a wrong did happen and judgment did need to come down. And back during the time of things like Kaepernick, you had cases like Flandro Castile, who was a legal gun owner, who was shot because he was a legal gun owner. So these things happened. There was an overarching point about police brutality that needed to be talked about, and yet these, and yet a lot of people in the right, who were some of the loudest critics, were saying, shut up and dribble, don't kneel, don't do all these things. And now you turn back around and you make the exact opposite criticism when it comes to China when that criticism needs to come from these players. They need to feel like they can do this. And right now, between China and what's happened in the United States, they don't. Now, the NBA has its own form of hypocrisy here. Like I said, they're, they consider themselves easily as the most wokest league where you can say anything you want. They, they said this to all of their favorite partners. You hear this from everywhere from The Ringer to ESPN, everywhere. All the places where they invest media resources, they act like they can say whatever they want. But reality, when it comes down to the money, they're choosing that over speaking out at all. What, what they do is they speak out when there's nothing, there's no cost at all. They're more than happy to speak out about Donald Trump and things like that, because it has no cost to them. They can talk about it all they want, and it won't cost them a thing. It won't cost them any fans. It just won't cost them anything. But now that this could cost them, and literally the NBA thing with China, it could cost them so hard that it could affect the salary cap. Like each team could lose, I think the estimates I saw were between 6 to $8 million per team to pay out to different players. So it could literally affect how the next few NBA seasons play out and how much these teams who have been planning out their roster moves for the next few years, how they do that because they're going to have less money. So when the NBA faces that kind of threat, they shut everybody up. And I believe it was the NBA in this case just because everybody was saying the exact same thing from top to bottom. Oh, this is a nuanced situation. This is a special situation where... We're not educated enough. We need to learn more and learn more about the culture. There's not a lot to learn here. China is an evil, totalitarian state who has a litany of human rights abuses going back decades, back to World War II, practically, where they have murdered millions of people, where they are wiping out minority communities today. People are in re-education camps today where they have used literal slave-type labor to build some of these things in their, in their country. They, they had their own work for the Soviet word gulag, but they, ha they have an equivalent in their country where their country 
is profiting off having that type of labor build things. So to say that China has its problems, you just can't compare that, what they're doing, to what happens in places like America or elsewhere. Steve Kerr tried to get away with that, where he said, oh, you know, you know, and you don't want me talking about AR-15s or, thing, or school shootings or other things that happen in America. Well, that has nothing to do about what's happening in China. There is no comparison that you can make between what's happening in China and what's happening in America and make some kind of fake moral equivalency. The hypocrisy of the NBA on this point, pretending to be that they to be something that they're not, shows what an absolute poser version of the league that they are. They ultimately come, it comes down to money with them, just like it did with the NFL, and they're trying to shut up their players, just like the NFL tried to do. So it, they're not a woke league at all. They're just full of hypocrisy. So it's it's disgusting to see all of this. It's maddening to see all this hypocrisy. It's something that I would like to see change. I would like for the players to actually be free to talk about what they want. I'm fine with all of that. I like the celebrations and the touchdowns that they're all doing now, and I don't mind players speaking about what they believe in. It doesn't bother me. But if you're going to claim all of this, then you have to be consistent across the board. You have to not engage in cancel cultures type stuff on the right, and you can't just pretend to be something that you're not on the left, which is what we're seeing. So I'd like some more consistency here, and I'd like to see the NBA actually stand up to China because there are some bad things about China. And I would like to use the NBA to export more American values abroad so that China does come out of this communist dark age that they're in. We want to see that change because the world will be a safer place if that takes place. So that's all I've got to say about the NBA for this week. After the break, we'll go into Elizabeth Warren and some of the audio clips of her pregnancy discrimination firing story. Next up is Elizabeth Warren's shifting story about her pregnancy discrimination in that she's been claiming since 2014 when she first released a book and how this story and her shifting of it shows that she's the media's new darling and they're trying to make her officially the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. Now, a while back, I wrote a Conservative Institute column on Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg on how the New York Times said that both of them were media darlings. They had hacked the media and hacked it to such a way to always get positive coverage. And I want to revisit that point here because what I said was that was really a sign of media bias. It wasn't that these guys had hacked the media in any way. It's that the media had decided that they liked these two candidates the most and they were going to give them free, positive media coverage no matter what happened. And this latest version of Elizabeth Warren's story proves that point. Warren has a history of embellishing her credentials or lying altogether, just going back to her claiming that she had Native American uh, heritage in her. When she first rolled out that story, for the first eight hours, media companies and journalists across all of the spectrum, especially in the Washington Post and New York Times, they all praised this rollout and and said it showed that she had just all this masterful touch 
Well, you know, just minutes after conservatives read it, they immediately started mocking her relentlessly. And then Native American groups actually stepped in and said, hey, what you've done here is saying that you took a DNA test and that proves you're Native American. That's really wrong. And for whatever reason, that never crossed anybody in her campaign's minds when they did that rollout. So these are not people who have hacked the media. These are people who are getting positive treatment from the media, and the media says, oh, well, they just must have hacked everything. That's what's happened here. That's, what's not, that's not what's happened at all. This latest story is by a guy named Jerry Beyer. He wrote a couple of different pieces, but the main one is at the Wall Street Journal. And what he noted was that from 2014 to present, Elizabeth Warren has claimed that she was fired from one of her first jobs as a teacher because she was pregnant. And this happened in 1971. And she's been, she's written this in a book, and she's claimed this numerous times throughout the campaign trail to say that this is a way that she knows how other people feel that they have been discriminated against, and because she knows what that feels like, she will fight for you. Well, what he did was he went back and he found a 2007 interview that she gave at the University of California at Berkeley, where she talked about that first job and what happened there. I'm going to play a clip from that, because what it shows is that she never says that pregnancy discrimination was part of it. She never says she was fired because she was pregnant. She just says that she ended up leaving because she had other plans. And you'll hear it in the clip. It's not exactly that. I'm paraphrasing. But discrimination wasn't a part of what the reasoning that she gave in this interview. So this is from UC Berkeley in 2007, Elizabeth Warren describing this in an interview. From grade school on, and what they opened me up to was the possibility that I too could be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's when I went off, when I went off to college, the whole idea was so that I could be a teacher. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. I just didn't quite know what kind of teacher I ended up Mm -hmm. becoming, so... And, and at college, what did you major in, and, and uh, uh, what were the focus of your interests? I, I came to college thinking what I was... I came to college on a debate scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 16 years old when I graduated from high school, and I got a full scholarship in debate that was room, board, tuition, books, and a little mm-hmm. spending money. Mm-hmm. I, it was a fabulous scholarship at George Washington University uh, if I would debate for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of the equivalent of an athletic scholarship, only uh, this was one that a, actually a girl could get. And um, even though there weren't very many girls in debate either, um, I was going to be a teacher, mm-hmm. and I quickly switched over and decided what I wanted to do was work with brain-injured children. So I got my degree in speech pathology and mm-hmm. audiology, uh, which meant that I would be able to work with, with uh, children who had head trauma and uh, other kinds of of brain injuries. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. For what? I mean, you, you actually pursued that career. I actually did. Um, I was married at 19 uh, and then graduated from, from college, actually, after I'd, I'd married. And my first year post-graduation, uh, uh, I worked. It was in a public school system, but I worked with the, the children with disabilities. And um, I did that for a year. And then that summer, uh, I, I actually didn't have the education courses, so I was on an emergency certificate, it was mm-hmm. called. And I went back 
to graduate school and took a couple of courses in education and said, I don't think this is going to work out for me. Mm. And I was pregnant with my first baby. So I had a baby uh, and stayed home for a couple of years. And I was really casting about, thinking, what am I going to do? Um, and uh, my husband's view of it was, stay home. So that's the 2007 clip where Elizabeth Warren is discussing why she left that job, that first teaching job that she had. This is in 2007. She never says that she was fired because she was discriminated against because she was pregnant. Now, this is not to say that that didn't happen in 1971. That was perfectly legal. You could be fired as a woman if you were pregnant. An employer could absolutely do that. There was nothing against the law stopping them from doing that, and you can find countless examples where that literally did happen. But there's no evidence that happened in this case. And so what Jerry Beyer did on the Wall Street Journal piece is he and other journalists got together. They, they asked her about it. They said, hey, you didn't say anything about it in this interview. You didn't do anything here that says that you were fired because you were discriminated against. And the quote that she ended up saying is that she told a different story at that UC Berkeley interview because, she says, after becoming a public figure, I decided to open up more about different pieces in my life, and this was one of them. I wrote about it in my book when I became a U.S. senator. But that's not all the evidence. That's not where all the evidence ends here. We have more. And there's not just that 2007 interview. She said a very similar thing in 2011. I'll play that clip here where she gives, she's given another interview talking about this same period of her life. And she doesn't reference this, this that she was discriminated against at all. And this is just a few years before she ends up writing her book and running for Senate. He, he was transferred to New Jersey. Uh, I, I was going to be a public school teacher. And a whole series of quick events. And I'd been a high school debater. And the boys in high school debate back in Oklahoma had said, you should think about law school. And so I read up, found out there was a law school in uh, Newark, drove in, looked around, and thought I could give it a try. I graduated from law school uh, nine months pregnant, and Amy's getting a little bigger at that point. And I thought I'd stepped off the, the train. You know, hard enough to get a job for a woman then. I was about to have a baby, and nobody was interested in me. And uh, with that law degree from Rutgers, I hung out a shingle. So that's, again, the 2011 clip, where she talks about it being difficult to find a job after she's gone through law school. But before, when you're talking about the whole teaching gig job, she doesn't say anything of that matter. So, again, it's not that discrimination against women didn't happen during that time. It's just that there's no evidence that in these interviews that she's given that that happened. And so what the Washington Free Beacon did was they went a step further. They went and found documentation from that era, from that year, and were looking at the minutes from all these meetings that were being held about why she was let go. And they said in those interview in that documentation, that the only thing they could find was that the school board had accepted her resignation with regret. The year before that, they had happily rehired her and offered her a second contract. 
And so when you go into the documentation, there's no proof of that either. So you have these interviews with her and the documents from that era all not backing up what she says in 2014. Now, this is not a very major point at all. It's not going into policy. It just goes into her character and whether or not she's being truthful about who she is. This goes into, like the, like the Native American heritage thing, it goes into a propensity for telling the truth on a day-in and day-out basis. Warren has a history of doing these things. But it could be true. It could. She could have been let go from that job for multiple reasons. It could have been they, they regretted to let her go. It could have been because they were partially motivated because she was pregnant. It could have been any number of those reasons. And no, who really knows? That's not really the point here and why I'm bringing up all this. You can believe Elizabeth Warren or not. That doesn't really matter here. What does matter to me is looking at how major news outlets are covering this. Because it wasn't major newspapers who uncovered this and began hitting Warren's campaign with questions. It was only people on the right who fact-checked Warren. Now, this is important to note because they fact-checked other Democrats. When Joe Biden tells his famous, or infamous, however you look at it, corn pop story, where he's a lifeguard, and there are a bunch of African Americans at this pool that he's lifeguarding, and he meets a guy named Corn Pop. People on the left and across the journalism spectrum fact-checked that story and went and dug up things like obituaries and talked to everybody from that area to learn whether or not that story was true or not. They did not do the same thing with Elizabeth Warren. In fact, they went the opposite way. The New York Times and Washington Post in particular went hard left the other way and defended her on every step of the way of this story. And I'm going to give you just a sampling of some of the headlines that the Washington Post in particular ran in defense of Elizabeth Warren. So the first one, the big one that they ran, the headline was this. Conservatives claim Elizabeth Warren lied about her pregnancy firing. Women reality checked them on social media. Let me repeat that in case you didn't catch it. Conservatives claim Elizabeth Warren lied about pregnancy firing. Women reality checked them on social media. So not only are they not going in and questioning Warren and questioning her claims like they would Biden or anybody else, all they did was go about and ask other... They went on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and everything, and looked at people on the left who fired back at conservatives who raised these questions and said, oh, well, I was fired in the 1970s because I was pregnant. Well, that's awful for you if you were fired, but that has nothing to do with Elizabeth Warren's claim. Some women were fired because they were pregnant during that period of time. That does not mean Elizabeth Warren was. This is a a fallacy, a logical fallacy being paraded about as a defense. Here's another one that they ran. Here's the headline. As some question Elizabeth Warren's pregnancy discrimination, women tweet their own stories. So again, they're doing the exact same thing here. They're saying Elizabeth Warren's being attacked, but instead of covering that, here are the stories of other women who have experienced this very thing that she's claiming. So it's the exact same thing. They're saying because these other women's were, that makes Elizabeth Warren's story true, or it just casts fog over the entire situation so you don't question Warren's story at all. A third one that they ran, anatomy of a fake GOP scandal about Elizabeth Warren. 
So they're already declaring for you, the reader, that this is a fake smear. The fourth one they ran. The Elizabeth Warren pregnancy smear shows how poisoned the media world is. Oh my, now that they're now they're they're accusing everyone of having media bias. The New York Times jumped in the fray too. They said, as Elizabeth Warren has risen in polls, Republican turn Republicans turn to questioning her authenticity. It's an old sexist trope often used against female candidates. So again, they're not attacking Warren. They're not even really defending her story. They're attacking the messengers. They're attacking the people who are reporting this. So it serves as a dual purpose. Not only are they trying to create these cancel culture-type mobs to go after anybody who goes after Warren, they're also trying to warn other journalists to not go after her. That's what some of this is, where you're trying to push reporters out. It's almost like you're looking at Smeagol and Lord of the Rings, where he's trying to, they're grasping after their precious. Elizabeth Warren is their one ring. You don't want to touch their precious, because that's theirs. And so they're not letting any attack to her go through. And mind you, not one vote has been made in the Democratic primaries. Not one. Elizabeth Warren has only recently gotten to the top of some of these polls in national and state elections. Joe Biden is the one who's been leading all these polls up until now. And so they're trying their best to pave the way for her while all these other candidates are in the field. You have others like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, and you have other candidates of color who are out there, and we were all told at the beginning of this cycle that the only person who could win the Democratic field was a person of color, and here they are going with a white woman who claims at some point in her life that she was Native American and she used a DNA test from 23andMe to prove that to everyone. Maybe at Ancestry.com. But basically, she went on Amazon, she bought a test, and now she's proving that she is also a person of color. And when that imploded, she just quietly let the media sweep that under the rug for her. And now she's getting questioned again about her background. And what all this really goes to is that she's never really suffered anything serious in her life. She's just another privileged, rich person from the upper Northeast who's here to tell you how to run the world. She's not. This goes to her credibility on that front. She's never really suffered anything. She's just another rich elite. And they don't want that to be the case. They want to be able to, her to, be, able to be able to say that she has a compelling story, that she's somehow different from Hillary Clinton. That's what they're trying to do here, to give her this all this pumped up and this air underneath her wings, and it's just not working. This is very clear media bias. You often hear conservatives talk about media bias and how it affects them, but this is how media bias works on the left. They're choosing the candidate that they want and trying to shove that fo- that choice down the throats of voters so that they automatically go towards that person and against everyone else. So they don't give anybody else all this all this coverage. This is they claim that Elizabeth Warren has hacked the media coverage, but in reality, what that means is they've chosen Warren, they've chosen her in this field, and they're not going to give anybody else that level of coverage. So that's how media bias works on the left. It's not just a conservative issue. It's a partisan issue across the board where they're trying to tip, put their finger on the scales of these elections and affect the outcomes. So that's all I've got to say about that story. After we get back from the break, we'll break down the abortion case that is coming before the Supreme Court. All right, last topic for today's show, and that is 
the abortion case that is returning to the Supreme Court. And I say returning for a very specific reason, because this is one of the first orders we've gotten out of the Supreme Court's long conference, and it's addressing a case that was before the court just a few years ago in 2016. So this is the first abortion case we've had in three to four years, and so we're going to get a, a good idea of what this new version of the court that has Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on it, how they're going to handle these abortion cases. So I said this is the one of the first orders we got after the long conference. So the long conference happens at the first part of the October term of the Supreme Court each fall. So the Supreme Court is off in recess over the summer, and they're not hearing cases, and they're not handing out really any orders over that period of time. And so what happens is they have this what's called the long conference, where they hear all the petitions that have been backing up over the summer, and they decide which ones they're going to take and which ones they're not going to take. And so this case is consolidated out of two different ones out of the state of Louisiana, and it's called June Medical Services versus Gee. And in a nutshell, what the state of Louisiana did was they passed a law that required doctors who perform abortions to also have admitting privileges at a local hospital. So that's not always required in some of these abortion clinics. The doctor doesn't have to be able to admit it to, at the local hospital. So they require that as part of their medical law. Now, this law that Louisiana has put on the books here, it's not a new one in the country. In fact, this is almost exactly similar to a case in 2016, like I was saying, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt. And in that case, the Supreme Court was ruling on a very similar thing that talked about admitting privileges for a doctor, and they had to have that in if they're going to perform abortions. There were other provisions at play in that case, but that's what makes this one so similar and so interesting because an almost identical law is before the Supreme Court, and they decided to take that case, even though in 2016 they decided it. So there's a reason why this is coming back up, and it's because in 2016 there were a lot of changes. In February of that year, you had Justice Antonin Scalia's death. You had the presidential election going in a full swing. Hillary Clinton was leading in the polls. And because of that, you had really had a 4-4 split on the court with Antonin, with uh, Kennedy being the swing vote there, and not really a swing vote at all just because it was a 4-4 court. And he joined this opinion, and it was a 5-3 decision with Roberts, Alito, and Thomas as the dissenters. So... It was an interesting split in that the reason that everyone found this interesting is because Whole Women's Health, the 2016 case, it, rad it was radically different from all previous abortion cases. So normally, if, since 1992, there's been one requirement that um, all state law on state laws on abortion have had to cover. You cannot have a state law that causes an un, what's called an undue burden on a woman's right or access to an abortion. And that comes from the 1992 case Planned, Bar Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And this is what's known as the undue burden test. Now, the undue burden test is its own unique thing. It only applies in abortion law. It doesn't apply in any other rights context that you can find in Supreme Court precedent. It's its own unique thing. Um, 
And so what has been argued since then, since 1992, is courts have tried to figure out what exactly the undue burden test means. And the Supreme Court has gone a lot of different ways on this. But the key thing is that under whole women's health, the liberals on the court made the undue burden standard much stronger than what was ever said in the Casey case. They made it akin to something that lawyers call strict scrutiny, which, for just for your reference, means if a state passes a law and they and they have to get through strict scrutiny, they basically have already lost. It's very hard for a state to win a case when they're when the review that they have to pass is what's called as strict scrutiny. It's the highest burden that you can pass when it comes to regulating an individual right. So that's not, like I said, now that's strong. So when they're making the undue burden test something closer to strict scrutiny, like I said, that's not what Kennedy wrote when he was in the plurality of the Casey opinion. That's not what they meant in that opinion. It was supposed to be something that wasn't as strong as strict scrutiny, but not as weak as what's all called rational basis. And it also wasn't the one in the middle that we that the law already has called intermediate. So it's its own unique thing that nobody knows what it means. And so everybody has fought over those lines of where it falls, and Kennedy has fallen all over, over all this. And so before the whole women's case in 2016, Kennedy had authored opinion that said that states had the right to come in and follow the certain tests under the undue burden and pass regulations on abortion. It wasn't impossible for them to do so. But what happened in the, the whole women's health is that the Supreme Court struck down the requirement that doctors had to have admitting privileges in a local hospital. So if you can't do that, and that's an undue burden on a woman's ability to get an abortion, then that really means the states can't do much of anything. Because if that's an undue burden, then just about any requirement that you put on doctors to perform abortions would be an undue burden. So what that case caused was an upheaval in the law. It was already a mess before that, but what this, this really caused a mess because no one really knows how that case can exist when you have it in the line with all these other cases that say something completely different. So what I think happened here, it, it comes down to what was happening at the time and politics. I think the reason this case stands out and the reason the Supreme Court is willing to look at it so recently is that politics got in the way of a good decision. So you have to think back to what happened. On Feb- in February of 2016, Scalia dies. So he's no longer going to be able to decide or vote on this case. He's, he's out. He This case would have been, was handed out in June of that year, and so Scalia, anything Scalia, any of his thoughts, they're already gone. So what might have been a 5-4 or in, in the other way, or depending on what had happened, no longer was there. The only thing that existed on the court with Scalia gone was effectively a three, a solid three-judge minority on the conservative side. You had four on the other side with Kennedy in the middle. So you had that as a backdrop of what was happening on the court. What was also happening was that Hillary Clinton was ahead in the polls at this point. When this case was handed down in June, she was far ahead at this point. We hadn't quite hit the excess Hollywood point of the news cycle, but she was still ahead as we were heading into the convention season. Donald Trump 
was still trying to consolidate the field, and it looked like Republicans were going to lose that election. And what I think happened was is that the liberals on the court saw that they had a free chance to expand abortion rights with no real consequence. They could take this case and do what they wanted with it because Republicans would not be able to check whatever they did on the backside. And then they convinced Anthony Kennedy to join them so that they wouldn't have a 4-4 split, which would mean that there wouldn't be a strong um, majority opinion on this because Kennedy always has always sided with abortion rights. He's just also sided with the occasional restriction that states have tried to put on the abortion right. So he's, he sits in this middle where he's, he waffles both ways. But they can talk him onto this one. So there's, there's a, a shift to strict scrutiny in this case and the belief that another liberal justice will be on the way if Hillary Clinton is elected. So this means that he, if they pass this case, they can come back in a later case and strengthen whatever they put in here so that the undue burden standard becomes effectively strict scrutiny and states will not be able to pass a single restriction on abortion across the land. So that's a big thing. I think that's what the liberals saw, that they had a chance to do on the Supreme Court. And then everything got thrown in disarray because Donald Trump won the election. And now you have Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court, and now they're coming back to revisit whole women's health and it's weak precedent just because it stands out like a, just like an eyesore in the middle of everything else because it's just not like any of the other cases. And so this is why I also think you've seen the liberals on the court talk loudly about how much they believe in the need to follow stare decisis in all these cases. They think that's important now because they don't want cases like this to get overturned, even though they know and everybody else knows that is not good law. It doesn't match up with any of the precedent before it. So now they're trying to defend this three-year-old decision on the basis of, well, it's decided, so that makes it stare decisis. So I think... What's happening here is Roberts is trying to correct a bad decision by the court that's only a few years old as the first foray into redefining what the abortion right means overall. Because there's, if you were going to follow the same thing that you did before, you wouldn't take this case. You would just deny this case outright, and they didn't. They decided to take it, and it's the exact same thing that they saw in 2016, and this time, we're going to get the result again in another presidential election, and it'll probably we'll probably get that decision in June of 2020. So as we're heading into those conventions, you're going to see this big abortion case drop in the middle of the summer. That's probably going to cause a pretty big stir. So just keep that on your horizon, that that's probably going to drop, because this is one of those contentious cases, which means it's probably going to come out closer towards the end of the term. So I think Roberts is starting there as a way to correct what happens in 2016. So the path forward that I think conservatives and pro-lifers need to take on this front is they need to encourage this case moving forward and ensure and argue stringently that Roberts overturns that whole woman's that whole women's health case because you want the undue burden standard to mean something closer to what it meant under Casey, which was a situation where states could pass these regulations without having to pass these higher burdens that they that applied previously. If 
the Supreme Court wanted to use the strict scrutiny at the highest level, all they'd have to do is go back to Roe v. Wade. That was the standard that the court used there. And while that was a high standard, it at least made sense because strict strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis, the three different levels that you typically use in these civil rights cases, those are something that apply across the board. It's something that all judges know how to use because it's something that's used with all rights. It's very typical. Undue burden is its own unique thing in the law, and so I don't think it's long for this world anyway just because it doesn't make any sense to have this unique thing out here for this unique judge-created right. All of this, it just doesn't fit with the law overall, and if you're trying to make everything match other rights, then you're going to have to eventually change the undue burden standard. I don't know that they'll do that in this case, but they will rein in the bad precedent of whole women's health in 2016 and bring it back to where it was before, which is good for states that are trying to pass these regulations. The second thing that needs to happen is states are going to have to attack the abortion laws in a new way. They've got to use a new tactic, and these heartbeat bills, while they're great, and I, and I fully agree with the reasoning behind them, they're not the path forward. I know Tennessee had its own version of the heartbeat bill, and I even wrote one of the senators um, over the summer telling them not to pass it just because there's so much bad case law for these these various um, heartbeat bills. Courts have been striking them down left and right, partially because they've had this bad precedent of whole women's health out there that basically means that you're automatically a loser. It doesn't matter how you're going to design this. You're going to lose because the undue burden standard has been made something that it was never meant to mean by the 1992 Casey Court. So that's why I don't think until you can rein that back in, none of these state laws is going to work. But I believe Roberts will do that in this case because that's generally the only reason you would have to go back in and redefine that case. So that means that states need to have a plan of action other than the heartbeat bills. And I think the Supreme Court has also signaled what they want here, too. The path forward is to follow what Indiana tried in what they called an anti-eugenic abortion law. And that banned abortions done on the basis of genetic defects, sex, and race. So what that meant is that if you wanted an abortion because your kid was the wrong race or the wrong sex or had some sort of quote-unquote genetic abnormality, you wouldn't be able to do that. It wouldn't ban abortions outright, but it would ban abortions on a eugenic basis where you're trying to go after these things where you're protecting race, sex, and people with genetic defects and making sure they're not seen as less than under the law. And when the Supreme Court declined to take up the Indiana case, what they said in that denial was that they were going to wait for more of these types of cases to bubble up. They want to see what other circuits and other appellate courts have to say. And there have been some strong dissents by some of the newly elected Trump appointees in some of these circuits where they've said good things, and even some of the other conservatives who are on these benches. They've given strong dissents. And I think there's a chance where you could get what you need, and that's a and that is a circuit split here because these laws are just enough different from what's been passed before, and they don't line up with the undue burden standard that's passed down through Casey. That you could get some positive case law if you take this path. 
I think this is the only viable path forward for some of these cases. They need, for some of these states, I mean, they need to shelve what they're doing with the heartbeat bills and move into banning abortions on the basis of eugenics and focus on protecting people who have these genetic abnormalities, as they're called, and focus on protecting them from abortions on that basis. If that works, that should weaken the undue burden standard beyond what we've seen now, and then you can move forward with an outright state ban that would attack and be the full uh, the full frontal assault that a lot of these states are trying on the abortion front. So that's the path I see forward. First thing you have to do is win this case in 2020, which I'm hopeful for, and I believe that there's a good basis for it to be overturned. And then states need to pass different types of bills, not these heartbeat bills, but then these anti-eugenic abortion bills. So if you do that, that's probably the path forward. Uh, I've talked to some friends trying to work through some various state proposals in Tennessee and elsewhere, trying to get them to do this. Hopefully I'll be get to do more, but that's the path that I say forward. If you follow this, that's the path towards knocking out Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and allowing states to attack abortion and ban it outright and have that right under federal law and not be blocked by the case line of Roe v. Wade. So look for that case to come down in next year, in 2020. It may come out sooner than June. I wouldn't expect it anything like that because this is going to be one of the divisive cases. So that's all I've got on that, and that will do it for this show. Questions, comments, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or reach out to me on Twitter, DvonCI. Look for my next column to come out on Monday at the Conservative Institute, and make sure to sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get all my columns and other writing in your inbox at the end of each week on Friday morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. If you liked or enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out in the rankings. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.